human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I'm joined by my dear friend and one of my favorite people on Earth, Liz Glazer. Liz, a lifelong philosopher by nature, is a law professor turned comedian and writer. Her trajectory gives a unique perspective into what empathy can look like not only as a student and a teacher, but also as a performer in a notoriously tough field in which it's so important to have compassion for oneself, especially when getting heckled. Please enjoy Episode 4, Cultivating Empathy Between Rocks and Hard Places, a.k.a. Law School and Comedy, with Liz Glazer. How are you doing today? Um, good. I, well, I mean, we can, like, start. Oh, we're starting! (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not to tell you. (laughs) That's the best. Um, yeah. Okay, so today I was journaling about all the reasons that I feel very grateful. One of the things that I believe you and I share on the basis of, you know, all the stuff we've kind of ever talked about and what goes on in the backdrop of our friendship and conversations is like looking at one's own life while being in it. Yes. And and so, yeah, I was having a moment of like, wow, I am privileged. I'm sitting with my feet up, you know, on a couch and a table in a living room and I'm journaling and, you know, I've got two cats with me and I woke up when I wanted to. And, you know, it almost like, like the nervous person in me, which I think we've also connected about mm-hmm. is like, oh God, I don't want to say thank you for these things that then could go away. And like, what if, how sad would I be if each of them goes away, et cetera. So I think about all of that stuff and I try to remain grateful if for no other reason than I've read that it's a good idea. <laughs> like, um, but I mean, I, I, you know, in a serious way, like I've found that it does help with, among other things, empathy. And I think, you know, not that I'm like the authority on why it is in general, but in terms of myself, I think that like a couple things. One, um, I do recognize the ways that feeling thankful for the things that I have for some reason activates something inside of me to then, I guess maybe it's the the anxiety of it going away that like, okay, so some people don't have, you know, Karen sitting near me. Uh, I didn't get to her, but that was also part of the gratitude. Yeah. That the gratitude activates something physical inside you that you can detect? Uh, Well, I guess so, but I I meant it like a thought, Um, you know, of just like, because I get so anxious that each of the individual things I'm grateful for could could easily disappear, sure. God forbid. And of course, there's the anxiety piece. But like, you know, I, I read somewhere um, that anxiety and gratitude are like come from the same place in your brain or body or both or whatever. And so I don't know if that's true, but 
it's at it's at least true that one can only have like one of those thoughts at a time. So even if, as I find my brain often does, I go between the feeling grateful, feeling anxious about loss, grateful, anxious about loss. It is impossible to have literally both at the same time. I think I'm more naturally prone to the anxiety about loss piece. It takes work for me to do the gratitude piece. Mm -hmm. I've read it's a good idea. So I do it which is an anxiety-based reason, but still, you know, it, it happens. And I, I feel grateful for the practice of gratitude. Um, so that's one reason. And then the second reason I forgot. <laughs> well, that, I think that's such an, an interesting way to start. And you're already answering a question that I was going to ask you a little yeah. further down the line. But let me go back a second, because I know you super well. The listeners don't. So if you could give a very brief synopsis, even like point A, point B, point C of your like professional trajectory, you were a blah and then you were a blah and now you're a blah. Right. Um, So first I was a child professionally in New Jersey and um, I uh, didn't, you know, as a child, I feel like my favorite pastime was like spacing out you know, and, and having like occasional profound thoughts. And then the next trajectory jumping way ahead was that I went to law school after college. Although I guess like also sort of grad school and college, I did like, I went to Penn. And the reason I'm saying this is just that like, um, uh, while there, I realized at the beginning of my senior year that I'd be able to graduate early, but I had no desire to graduate early. All my friends were there, you know, it just like literally didn't occur to me. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't a great test taker and I was applying to law school and I needed help because my LSATs were like only okay. And I was like, I had really good grades, but I'm like, I feel like I need something to kind of push me over the edge. So that was one piece of it. The other piece was that I was maybe gonna wanna go to a PhD program in philosophy because I had it in my head that I wanted to be a professor, which I was, and I'll get to that, but I think the reason for that was that I took this class called Justice, Law, and Morality in my junior year, and this woman taught it, and her name's Heidi Hurd, and she's like, I don't know, a dean somewhere, whatever, but um, she's really cool, and she has she's very smart blah blah but she also has amazing stage presence Mm -hmm. and i was like if there is a school that i can go to to become her that's Mm -hmm. what i want to do and like honestly i think i was trying i I just wanted to be like oprah like that's that's what i wanted yeah well it sounded like from even from the very beginning when you were a child you were a philosopher to begin with which i think is very interesting because i think that philosophy is one of the major things that links law and yeah. as we get to comedy but right mm-hmm. yeah i think that's true and so yeah i was interested in the ideas of the class and i also thought that this this professor was like really just striking so obviously i became her research assistant and like puppy dog basically mm-hmm. and i said to her i was like okay, so I want to like be you. How do I go about that? And she was like, well, if I can give you a piece of advice, I like, she kind of, I don't know what her deal is now. I I know she's been a Dean and I think she's gone on to like do things in academia that are very like high profile. And like, frankly, where you get a big salary, which aren't all things in academia. And I don't think that's the most, most important thing, 
But what she would say to me, she's like, you know, basically don't be an idiot and don't like go to get a PhD in philosophy unless like you have some really deep desire for that. But what I'm getting from you is that you want to be in the front of the room. You want to write, you want to think, you want to teach. Uh, and you can do that if you are a law professor and you can make three times as much money at least. And also you don't have to wait for someone to literally die for you right. to maybe get a job in a place you don't even want to live. Mm -hmm. And that advice ended up being really valuable um, because while it's very hard as a statistical matter to get a tenure track teaching job in anything and even in law, even though that's easier than in a philosophy department, I ultimately did get that job. I worked at Hofstra for nine years. And in the middle of those nine years, I had one visiting semester at Loyola Chicago and, and then two visiting semesters at Northwestern Law School. And between those chunks of time, like away, I took an improv class, connected with an improv teacher from that class, who then told me to do stand-up comedy, which I did and I loved. And then after the nine years of teaching, left uh, what would ultimately become a tenured position to become whatever it is that I am now. A comedian, sure. A stand-up comedian, I guess, but what is that right now? A Zoom comedian, that's not even a thing. Um, but I write and I act and you know, I, I work on projects that are scripts and videos and I generally try to express myself in a way that is philosophical and honest and comedic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great, great. And it sounds like you're, first of all, you're making the transition from being a law professor to doing whatever it is you do now, comedy and speaking in some form. Right. Was an act of empathy toward yourself. Oh, um, that's generous, yeah. But um, I want to, I want to get, I want to get granular if yeah. we can. And I don't want to trigger any, any traumatic times in your law tenure. However, oh. I'm curious to know, just because it's a world that I, I have not been in myself, uh, in, in academia, but like in specifically in law and academia. Yeah. How was your experience of really connecting interpersonally and how in speaking to people, whether it was students or colleagues, um, how did that feel to you? Did it feel authentic to you? Did you feel like you had the expectation to repress uh, any part of yourself? I'm just curious what that felt like, like living in that soup. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. And you're so nice about the trigger stuff, but it's all fine. Um, and okay, so I generally, when I talk about leaving law for comedy or whatever, uh, I don't think of it as I was so unhappy, so therefore I left because that wasn't true. It was very much that I had reached this, you know, achievement apex and it was sort of like I climbed a mountain and then I was like, why did I climb this mountain? And I guess that's metaphorical, but for me, pretty much if I climbed any mountain, I think I'd be like, why did I climb this mountain? Because I <laughs> don't generally desire to climb mountains, but like, uh, I... I think that, I think for me, because I really did take seriously that kind of like, you know, whatever it was, that drive to like have a profession that my parents instilled in me with the best of intentions. And also for what it's worth, like 
I don't, I'm not sorry that that was the case because, you know, a lot of my financial support the last few years ultimately came from my years doing this thing that I wouldn't have done if I hadn't followed their advice. And so, you know, I just say that because it's true. Um, but like, yeah, I, I, when I think about my, my time teaching, there are a couple of examples of like, for me, moments that I could have been more empathetic and they, you know, they kind of like make me cringe thinking about them. You One mind was, yeah. what's that? I asked if you might minded sharing, but you already were jumping into it. So Oh it yeah, yeah, totally. So there was, okay. So I got my law teaching job in a very non-traditional way. And the traditional way is like, I think the yield is literally like 0.00001%. Like it's a really hard job to get. And it's it's kind of like um, auditioning, you know, in acting and stuff. Whereas it's like, yeah, you're probably not going to get like most of the things that you apply for. So you might as well develop the thick skin to get rejected so many times. And I so get that now. And that is also the case with these law teaching jobs and I didn't have that experience because of a very weird way that I was contacted, which was that my school, I guess for years prior to them interviewing me, had gotten into these situations where they would interview someone um, and interviewing for that type of job is like intense and takes a long time and all that. And then the person would go to a school that was closer to the city. Mm -hmm. um, so like Fordham or St. John's or Brooklyn or whatever. And they didn't like that. And they were like, well, what if we identify people who will be going on the general teaching market, but they're, they haven't yet. And they had, you know, metrics for like searching Westlaw and LexisNexis to determine who those people were. And basically it was, if you went to a top whatever law school and you wrote an article in your school's law review and the law review is a journal that exists at pretty much every law school. Sometimes it's called the law journal, but anyway, it's generally reserved for the top 10% of the class grades wise and grades in law school are blind and so the idea is that it's an objective metric of smartness and in some schools and I went to the University of Chicago and this was how it was there I can't speak for any other school but you could also write on in your second year which was what I did because I was like I'm not leaving this place like I don't care what my grades are because like some of them were fine some of them were bad and whatever like a couple were good but I'm going to publish a piece in the law review. And so I achieved that goal, which meant that I was forever memorialized on these search engines and therefore searchable and discoverable by this hiring committee who then reached out to me with a letter that I received in my regular mail at work when I worked at a law firm, which was basically like, a, I checked that mail to, to have a moment. Like <laughs> the same reason I would get coffee or like, try to pee more or something. Right. And so it was like generally checking spam. And uh, I opened the letter and I honestly wasn't sure if it was or wasn't spam, um, but it wasn't. I called the number back and then started an interview process with them that ultimately was successful despite every mentors, people who were on my side from law school who were like, you're playing with the house's money, but you are going to lose. You're not going to get this job. And I was like, I hear you. Will you write a recommendation and attend a moot job talk? Like I'm going for it. And then I got it. And, uh, I was really scared because like my school, um, the UFC has this like very weird, I don't honestly know why they have the grading system that they do, but the grades were at the time from a scale of 55 to 90 for no reason. 
Um, 55 was failing, 90 was an A, but really anything, like really you couldn't get a 90, you could only get an 84, except some Supreme Court justice who graduated years ago got an 85 reportedly and like whatever. So anyway, my grades weren't good. And so when I initiated the hiring process with the school, I sent them my transcript first because I was like, I don't want this to like be a thing, right? And it has a legend at the bottom, you know, that says what the grades are. And anyway, uh, it wasn't a problem. I ended up getting the job and then I would be on hiring committees later in my life as a professor at the school, where in some cases, candidates were um, rejected because their grades weren't high enough by the same people who hired me, which then led me to believe that those same people just didn't understand my transcript, right. which is the best reason for, <laughs> like, it's like the, the sickest burn. Cause I'm like, who's the smart one here? You, you didn't understand a transcript that said that someone got bad grades. I think you get a bad grade in understanding bad grades. Right. right. So, anyway, but I say all of that because there was one meeting I had with a student and this was a student who, you know, like I was an advisor for and whatever. And she asked me, she was like, she's like, Professor Glazer, did you like grade on or write on to law review? And I was so scared to be seen as not smart that I lied. And I said that I graded on. And I think that there was such an opportunity in that moment to like, you know, do the thing that I think I've like committed to later in life of just like, let me tell you all the reasons that I'm ashamed and, you know, all the sets that I've bombed and like anything like that. Like that's way more the way that I would, you know, initiate a conversation, but at the time I didn't. So. That's interesting. And I think, I I think that, um, I wonder if it has something to do with the way that something like law feels, and it's obviously always under construction, but feels rule bound and more black and white and more like unbendable 90 degree angles. Whereas something like comedy feels more subjective and fluid. And so maybe it's easier to step into vulnerability in a venue like comedy than it is in a venue like academia or law. there's something about it that feels, um, I don't know, less uh, soft or permissive to the human condition. I think that's probably true. I mean, I also think that it was a function of like my stage of life. Like I'm 40 now, then I was 27 through whatever, 36. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this was like closer to the 27 mark than the 36 mark, this conversation. I don't remember exactly when. And, um, but I think that there was also a part of me that like just needed to be seen as like good enough, smart enough, perfect, et cetera, in my younger life. And then only later realizing that like, in fact, I don't know, you know, it's like the Brene Brown talk. Like, I, I think that it's true that like the more that I can be open and vulnerable, the more that I'm able to connect with people, express joy, experience, like the good parts of life, basically. Um, And I just don't think that I got that before. I think I was like very much like, yeah, right. So anyway, all of that to say, it may be a law thing, 
but it also might be a me thing at that time. You know, I think also one thing that bears mentioning um, is that I, I had a tenure track job, which meant that my entire existence was like, in some ways graded um, because, hmm. you know, it was like a, a six year like audition once you got the job for whether you were gonna get tenure. And like a lot of that meant writing stuff that was like smart and accepted by good journals. And that was more easy for me to do. Teaching also was good for me, not like a hundred percent of the time, but like, you know, whatever. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't like anything really was like particularly problematic in terms of the elements of my candidacy for tenure, but I was always aware of it. And so, you know, showing your drafts metaphorically and literally was something that was discouraged because it's kind of like, okay, well, everybody knows that to get to the finish line of an article, there's a lot of people who are thanked in that first footnote. And what that really cashes out to are like, extensive notes on many drafts from really smart people who've been doing this a very long time, mm -hmm. you still need to like ultimately take the credit for yourself because that's the credit that you're going to be judged on for whether you get tenure or not. Sure. So it sounds like you're speaking to this element of um, competitiveness almost, yeah. not just with yourself, but like with the industry in general. Yeah. And I wonder how much that feeling contributed to your, like your sense of daily, daily equilibrium at that yeah. time during, during that almost decade. Um, did you have moments in which you and your colleagues would let your guard down in a real way, or was that harder to come by? I mean, I can't speak for them. For me, it was really hard. Um, you know, especially because there was this illusion that it was possible um, because was possible. The, letting your guard down, like people mm -hmm. would be like, oh, do you want to get together for drinks? And, mm -hmm. you know, of course there was like socializing outside of work. But for me, I never got it out of my head that these are people who are votes for me in six years. Mm -hmm. Like I had a list on my fridge of every single faculty member and like, have I connected with them individually? Because like, that's, you know, like, yeah, I was friends with some of them, but also like some of those people who I was like friends with were ultimately really difficult in, at the moment of tenure. There was a lot of like, I don't know, um, like a lot of uh, closed office door lobbying for and against certain causes. I mean, one one that was like a big one, which does involve empathy was, I don't know how this is at the time, at now rather, but at the time, uh, and, and it is like a big debate in law schools, there's this difference between clinical faculty and research or tenure track faculty. Mm -hmm. And the governance of the school kind of comes from the research and tenure track faculty, but there's also this real elitism uh, between them on the one side and then clinicians who are professors who actually work a lot. Like they write, they teach, they speak at conferences and they could be on, you know, professional committees and they have school committee obligations as well. And then there's this idea that they shouldn't be voting faculty members. And wow. it's an idea that was like a big issue at my school, but it's also a big issue. I don't want to say every school because I don't literally know. <clears throat> but it's a thing. 
And I remember when I first got to school, I was the new kid because that's what happens when Mm -hmm. you're first starting somewhere. And literally the first day that I got there, people were introducing themselves to me and like saying, hi, I'm this person is my name. Also, you should really vote this way on whatever, you know, item at the next meeting. And I was like, and and then I started thinking about it. I was like, okay, so we're voting against that other person who's also my friend, Mm -hmm. not being, not being able to have full voting rights at school. That seems wrong. But then if I don't vote that way, then it's like going to be seen as a ding against me for tenure. What do I do? I think actually in that setting, I did vote for the clinical faculty, or I abstained um, because, which isn't, a, I don't think that's like a heroic thing. Um, and it wasn't like I was super vocal about it either. Like I could have done way more. Um, but I remember having moments of like, this doesn't feel right, but somehow it's the right thing? Question mark, you know? Right. I mean, this is so interesting because I think it really speaks to that blurred line. I've been talking a lot with my guests about the blurred line between the personal and the professional, like the dicey gray area between networking and uh, building trust with colleagues. Yeah. And that right. they were and like then, mutually exclusive. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it was also just a weird thing because, you know, the idea that I remember having questions like just like doesn't that seem wrong to this person with a name and then like being told like you don't understand it's really complicated and I'm like is it and now looking back on it I'm like I think my initial instinct was right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there were there were moments like that where you know I, I think about them because you know at this point I am in many ways, not successful. Like, I don't, I I mean, I'm very happy that I left my job and like entered in this new life and phase and whatever. But like, you know, there are lots of things that I haven't gotten um, in comedy. Like, you know, I mean, I have a TV credit, but like, I don't think it ever even aired. And it's like some Canadian show that I had never seen or heard of. And uh, I don't know, I could go on about my lack of accomplishments. Like I have some stuff and, you know, some, sometimes I do okay on stage, but it's not like I'm famous and, you know, whatever. So right. if, if I'm being grilled, cross-examined, interrogated at Rosh Hashanah, there's <laughs> a very good chance that like somebody with a plate of locks can tell another person with a plate of egg salad. I don't think she's that funny and she's not doing that well. And that would be reasonable. So I say that because (laughs) I think a lot about like the pressures that I had when I was successful in a way, like when I had that job and people called me a fancy title and then I had tenure and I, you know, had a salary and whatever. And I think about the things that I want to not do when I have more success and or like a show with a staff that I want to, you know, create an atmosphere of fairness and an atmosphere of transparency and not repeat some of the more toxic elements of secrecy and pressuring and like, hey, vote on my thing and these people matter less than those people. And I I imagine like it's easy for me to say now because of my lack of success that ideally I would instill those like 
maybe their values are just like like um, corrections of past mistakes that I observed into a new work environment. Um, but I don't know. I think I have a better chance of doing that now than certainly than I did if, if I were 27 and in this life. Well, sure. I mean, I want to pause and just say that regarding your success or lack thereof, it's like in this discussion, doesn't even matter. And one of the reasons why I like you so much and admire you so much is like because you will always prioritize a real authentic human connection over success that has gotten um, through, you know, nefarious practices. Yeah. But and, I think part of that is also like learned, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you had to be in this environment for a while to know exactly what it was you could not tolerate. And I right. think that um, you followed some really sound advice from yourself in changing careers. But up until that point, mm -hmm. you were um, like a Rubik's cube, like turning and turning and turning uh, mm -hmm. to try to see if you could fit into that space. Right. Um, but I, I want to mention too, that like, you know, my, my imperfections continue through now because, you know, like last week I did, I've never done this before, but I did the thing of like, I did a couple of packets and I sent them in to shows that were receiving mm -hmm. writing packets. And mm -hmm. I did it because I was like, fine. That, that was like the, the, the sort of thing. And then I got into it and then I was like, you know, this, I think I'm funny every now and then, and mm -hmm. I think these are funny and I'll send them in. And I felt proud of myself for sending them in. And then I started thinking about like, okay, well, what's my life going to be like if I am at this show? And what if, you know, I have to do something morally questionable because I am at this show. And I mean, in my case, like, like I applied to shows that I think seem to have a good reputation like I've never sure. I've never heard specific things that I'm like this is what I'm worried about with this show and I don't think I would submit to something I mean I'm not submitting a packet for like I don't know now Fox News is like heroic so you can't even say Fox News but isn't that funny I just mean that with the president interview did you watch the Trump interview I did not oh I mean, it's whatever, I, but it's like, it, the, the interesting thing that I thought about it was that it's a Fox News interview, and then, you know, Chris Wallace, like, ends up seeming like this hero, even though it's Fox News. Right. So that was what I meant. But like, well, mm -hmm. I mean, that goes to show that, I mean, you can future trip all you want about these various shows that you might land on their staff, but ultimately, yeah. it's a moment to moment, and it's a person by person yeah. circumstance and there can be heroes of empathy in unlikely places um, right. and and people not appealing to their better empathetic selves in yeah. places you wouldn't expect so per usual i will tell you congratulations for sending in the packets and um come back to the present moment and worry about that when you get to it please <laughs> <laughs> um uh, this is great. I want to I want to segue into sure. uh, comedy, into into yeah. stand up. Your work doing stand up, um, because having done stand up myself, I I know a bit about the scene. But I would love, sure. in your words, to talk about um, some interpersonal um, moments of either deep connection or the opposite of that. 
uh, because a lot of it that a lot of things that happen in comedy would not happen in any other quote unquote professional environment, you know, but it right. is your work. So right. what, have, yeah, some ways that have been like impactful personally to you. Yeah. I mean, well, I, when I first started, <laughs> uh, I didn't mean to start stand up. I was not somebody who, you know, stayed up late watching stand up when I was a kid. I didn't have particular aspirations to do stand up. I had one person who I had a very big crush on offer me a spot to do stand up on her show and figuring that she would be at her own show, I did stand up. Mm -hmm. And then, and I know you've heard me say this, but like it came from something I said to my therapist, I did that uh, for the first time I did stand up and I felt like I was having a professional orgasm, which was basically like having a regular orgasm, except that I was a hundred percent sure that I was having it. And <laughs> I like, really, I think what that meant was that I was so happy to be able to be so honest mm -hmm. because I didn't have jokes. Like I didn't know from jokes, except for like my mom, I think naturally punctuates her, um, general conversation with punchlines like supernaturally and so i knew that and my dad had a very thick accent and so he was always doing an act out and it was always funny uh and so the combination of those were my comedic influences and i i then found myself doing stand-up and at that point, I was like still of the mind of like, okay, I guess this is my new profession. I'm going to have to find some mentors. And one of the first people that at that time appealed to me, she was like not quite as big as she is now, but was Amy Schumer. Mm -hmm. And I really was like, okay, this is like the person I want to like get to know her and have her be my mentor. And that did not work out. Um, and, uh, you know, like we're, we don't know each other, whatever, but, um, but I had it in my head that I wanted a mentor because I wanted someone to be able to just reflect back to me, like, you're funny, you're smart. Why don't you maybe say it this way or get on this show? And then, um, through the years doing comedy and much more naturally than I ever, you know, attempted to have Amy Schumer be my mentor, I encountered Mike Kaplan, who's like a mutual friend and obviously a super kind, empathetic, openly open-hearted person who has achieved a lot in comedy and maintained a really like high moral, um, threshold or whatever you know I have, him, I have him in my head and, and he'll he'll I'll interview him for this at some point yeah. too and I have him in my head always as this example that it is possible to be professionally successful in that field and right. not um sacrifice even a scrap of your of your moral fabric right and then yeah that's true and then Maria Bamford is also another friend and mentor and that you know both of those people, I couldn't have, it was like, I feel very taken care of in terms of like universally and whatever for finding myself in a position now where like those people are indeed mentors for me and friends of mine. And in both cases, I'm just like, you couldn't be funnier and more accomplished. And also like you're the person who I would want to know what you do in this situation as like, what's the kindest thing, not just what's sure. the funniest thing. And so I feel very lucky 
um, in that way. And, you know, also, I guess, accomplished, because I think that, like, getting to a place, I, I don't mean it in terms of skill, but, like, getting to a place where I've, like, situated myself to then come to know these people mm -hmm. um, who I do look up to so much uh, and also, like, marvel at the fact that they can be as kind as they are successful and funny, um, I feel like that's good. Yes. I feel good. It's a reflection of you. And I mean, I've had, in my personal life, I've had friends say to me before when I've been feeling, you know, kind of worthless, struggling with my self-esteem, um, wondering, you know, what I'm doing here. And, and then I think about all the people that I have around me, the friends in my life who I really admire, who I think are just glowing examples of humanity. And they remind me, well, we are in your life, like you are that also, you know? And right. Yeah, and I I feel reminded of that with respect to my friendship with you as well. I remember the first time I saw you on stage and I had the feeling like the feeling of seeing a show that I'm like, oh my God, this is what I want to do. Like similar to like seeing the teacher, the professor, you know, in college. And I was like, I just want to be you. But like when you were on stage, it was at, at Bunga's Den. <laughs> yeah, right. Bunga's Den with the like bat mitzvah Silver background. Rankin. Yeah. Right, right, like tinfoil drapes or whatever they were, <laughs> um, and uh, and you were, you know, simultaneously being so naturally funny and also just saying your stuff that was going on. I was like, yeah, this is what I want. And like, I, I always like, I don't know if you felt this way, but like, I have felt in my life, like, uh, what is this this the superpower of getting comedy friends? You know, like, how do people do that? I feel like I've not been able to do that. And meeting you was like a big moment for me in terms of like, oh, this is someone who I legitimately want to be friends with, hang around, talk on the phone with. And I didn't really have that before. Um, I mean, I was so new to comedy at that time. You know, I didn't really either. And I, I think it's, it just goes to show you that if you widen your gaze, yeah. eventually you will find a thing that resonates with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am very thankful that I did. That I am too. That made my day that day. And I think you also, you know, you talk about getting on stage the first time and not telling jokes, you know, set up punchline style jokes, right. but just speaking your experience. And that for me too, it, uh, that's, what I enjoy in comedians and that's what I end up doing myself. Um, and I think that it comes from a place of wanting to connect authentically, wanting to be yeah. as authentically myself as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, and to find a connection from someone else who's also, who wants those same things feels like the pinnacle of an empathetic experience. Right. And also, you know, the maturity as a comedian that comes from, recognizing over time that it's possible to take that route and to then edit and write the punchlines in and all that. Like the set that I saw you do at the comedy store in, I guess it was like 2018, mm -hmm. that true, mm -hmm. um, was amazing. And, you know, you were talking about your experiences coming to LA and it was like very heartfelt and felt very you and also was punctuated so um, rigorously by laugh lines. And it was like such a joy to watch. Oh my um, gosh, come on. It's true. That I mean, I, so good. 
good. Yeah. But it's like, you know, I mean, especially going to the comedy store, like to me, even, well, now nothing matters. But like, if we're talking about, <laughs> you know, March 10th, um, what, what going to the comedy store would have meant to me was like, okay, I guess I feel good that I am friends with a couple of the guys who work the door and like wave to some people in the hallway. But mostly I feel very out of place and intimidated a la ninth grade. And sure. so, you know, the feeling uh, up to like, I had a recent experience at yeah. the comedy store where I, I think I was there because a friend was doing a roast battle and I was early. And so, you know, it's very kind of mall-like where you can kind of go in and out of the rooms. Sure, it's a, and, whole, it's a whole compound. Right, right. And so I went in and like, it was, I never, I think it was the original room, yes. And uh, I believe it was Mark Marin who was on stage and I was like, huh, okay, like that's cool to be able to see that. Mm -hmm. And there was an open seat and it was like this leather chair literally next to Judd Apatow. Mm -hmm. And I had this moment that I was like, I guess I shouldn't sit there. And then I was like, but no one, no one's sitting there. Like, who cares? And I had this moment of just like, just sit, who, who's whatever. And so then I sat and then my friend who's a door guy just comes up to me. He's like, you can't sit here. <laughs> and, uh, and he was right. And also I, you know, whatever. But anyway, that's kind of the, you can't sit here is the way that I feel at the comedy store sure. in general and many other places. But like, um, but seeing you like really crush that set in like, I mean, that was the belly room, but you know, all rooms there are so hard, I think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, it was, it was a bringer show. So, well, but I mean, it's still, still like, it was packed with people yeah. who paid to be there. And that yeah. was very cool. Um, but you're right. I think that comedy is full of gatekeepers. Uh, there's definitely a hierarchy in it. And I think that you and I have the unique experience of being in comedy as some of those hierarchies are breaking down. And yeah. I think that ultimately it, it'll be better for empathy in comedy because- yeah. um, That's true. At least in my experience, um, I got into it with a, with an older comedian who was a, a stand-up teacher of mine. Not, it's weird to teach stand-up, but it's a thing that happens. Uh, but I we think got into it. Too. Yeah. Yeah. We well, got into it because he had been hustling for decades and decades and he had been a road comic and he had, you know, just put himself through the ringer, getting paid nothing, driving other people around, sleeping in roach motels, you know, and beer soaked bars and whatever. And I had come up through an improv theater and had pers had like segued from improv to stand up with with ease and with joy it seemed yeah. fun to me and this was unacceptable to him because in his mind comedy was really hard and the only way you were going to get successful is if you really suffered okay. and that something about the improv theaters becoming um more prevalent like the ucbs of this world um yeah. allowed for a different entry point into comedy sure which which I think um, has made comedy a little bit more um, open-minded and accepting of other kinds of people, especially because it yeah. was a very male-dominated industry. Right. And it's moving away from that. Yeah. I mean, what what has been what has been 
your experience with that? Do you find, do you find that most of the lack of empathy you experience in comedy comes from your own self or have people come, come at you? Mm, I don't know that I've had people come at me, uh, thankfully. Um, in terms of, I, I don't know. I mean, a lot of times what I experience in terms of like people who will do anything for, you know, another credit or something like that, or even people who will talk about doing anything for that and, and valuing, you know, success over, um, truth mm -hmm. and just like being the most real you, you can be. Mm -hmm. Um, and I guess like because of where I started and when I started, um, I, I have not wanted to like have my success outpace my really like engagement in it, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I get that like, there are lots of people who are really good at being funny and they're also really true to themselves. You know, it's like, just because, I, I don't know, like just to pick somebody like Taylor Tomlinson, like somebody who's like 25 and has a Netflix special, something like that, like that's great. And like Mike is another example of somebody who's had, I mean now, you know, he's 41, but like before that he wasn't and he had a lot of success. And I, I, I don't know, I guess I think about it in that way, like I, I wouldn't sacrifice my principles for success. And I'm glad that like, I came at it at a point where that was never gonna be a thing for me. Um, in terms of, you know, other ways of not having empathy, I guess like clearly, you know, like subjecting someone to abuse is not empathy. Um, you know, in a kind of me too situation or otherwise. Sure. Um, and I mean, I mean, I want to be able to like comment, but I don't know that I have that much to say about it. No, I think it. that's great. I think that's yeah. actually really great. And obviously, um, we're in these various groups, you know, on social media of, of women who are always speaking up. To, like there are, there are groups that yeah. are just for women. There are groups that are all for all comedians and people are, more and more in the past several years speaking up um, about, oh, there are, this is an, another all-male lineup with one, with one oh, yeah. on it, or, or women being introduced as a female comedian as opposed right. to just who they are. Um, uh, but, but it sounds like a kind of a golden time to be in the industry. And it also, what you just described in terms of putting truth over success always is like, you being a mentor to other young comedians starting out. Sure. Uh, thanks. I mean, and, and I guess like truth, like with a footnote of like kind truth, you know, like I, I mean, I, when I was teaching, there was this paper that I wrote and I co-authored it with a trans student. And I believe that the title was, um, uh, transgenderless discrimination or something like that. And the, the basic thesis of it was 
that the way that courts were going in terms of project, protecting transgender plaintiffs um, in like employment discrimination cases and such was that there was a perfectionist narrative. Um, and the sort of literary terminology is just the way that legal, like law review literature works. But basically it was like, this is good that trans plaintiffs are being protected, but unfortunately the narrative, the, the problems at that time, I think this was published in 2012, were a lot less than whatever is up now. But um, anyway, it was like the narrative that courts are being offered, even when it's protective of transgender plaintiffs who deserve and require this protection, are bad in terms of like what the kind of overall narrative seeks to be in terms of gender because it requires being a perfect gender conformist. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you know, that, that um, you had to be basically like a man dressing up as a woman or a woman dressing up as a man. And the way that courts would protect you was if they could see you as that. And if they couldn't, if they couldn't quite see you as in one box or another, then they wouldn't protect you. And so I wrote this paper and I co-authored it with a student and I did so because she was a great student and I had a, a good relationship with her as an advisor and also because I was writing about trans issues and I'm not trans. Now, I say all of this because my brother is trans and we really came to, to like fights uh, due to my authorship of this paper. Mm -hmm. And looking back, like the actual thesis of it, I actually don't think is problematic, nor do I think that Vic actually would think it was problematic. But in earlier drafts, I think I took, a, I, I like, you know, worded sentences in ways that were problematic and were basically like some manifestation of my response as a family member to having my brother come out. Hmm. Um, that I think was left unchecked in terms of my own writing. And as a put, like, whereas I could have been more open to hearing Vic's criticism and problem with my writing this, instead I took a very defensive position mm -hmm. because I felt like, no, I'm right from a, an argumentation perspective and you don't understand the law. Right. Instead of being like, how can I be more sensitive as a person who loves you? And so now, um, when I'm, you know, thinking of what jokes to say on stage, I really, I mean, I'm sure I'm not perfect. However, I think I take a lot of care to, like, not throw anyone under a bus sure. and, and that kind of thing. Sure. And it wasn't, it was not my intention to throw anyone under the bus in authoring that paper. Right. But I think that, like, recognizing that when I did which I think was too late in that other context. Mm -hmm. I, I hope and I endeavor to remember that mm -hmm. and try to be better. Well, thank you for that. I think that is a beautiful story and an illustration of personal evolution in real time. Um, and um, like, I, I think that really draws a nice line between between empathy and, and personal responsibility. Um, a lot of people would have, would have written that paper as you did and, and would have had these, these qualms, you know, with a family member and then forgotten about it. But you take it with you and use it as a, a touch point for checking in with yourself 
and making sure that the people who should be representing themselves are getting a fair shot to represent themselves. Um, yeah. and, and for that, Liz, I thank you because I think that you're a great representation of what the future could be. Thanks, Lisa. Yeah. This has been awesome. I'm so glad that you talked to me. Me too. Um, I will, uh, at the end of this uh, episode, I'll follow up with, with where people can find you, but if, is there sure. any, um, is there anything that you'd like to say, anything that you'd like to plug or sure. uh, anything else that you'd like to say to a potential mentee? Yeah, uh, sure. So I host a podcast called Finding 40 that's discoverable, you know, wherever you find podcasts, Finding 40. It's about being old. And um, <laughs> I, can <Subjective>. be found, <laughs> I can be found at dearlizblazer.com. Um, it's my intention to have an email list. So uh, if somebody wants to, you know, be a part of that, then they can find me there right. um, and sign up. And um, in terms of what I'd say to a mentee, which is such a lovely question, um, I think to, I think that like, this may sound trite, but like as, as much as I've been able to get myself to be present in a moment, mm -hmm. and for me, that's been, you know, sobriety, meditation, regular exercise, um, you know, journaling, like all of those practices are things that I would have thought earlier in my life were like soft skills or some, some version of that, like not, you know, it's like, okay, but like, let's get to bottom line. I think that is the bottom line. Yes. And <laughs> yes. I about that. I think that we've come into this next phase in which soft skills are the bottom line, which is part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast. I think it's great. And it's been so fun to talk to you as it always is. Likewise, Liz. You're the best. You're the best. Thanks, right. Lisa. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to episode four of What's Betwixt Us, Stories of Working While Human. To learn more about Liz and to hear and see her comedy in action, find her at DearLizGlazer.com. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at Z-A-N-I-E.app. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else.